Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Slave Race" by Philip K. Dick. This is first published in the Berkeley Daily Gazette, Monday evening, May eighth, nineteen forty-four. We've uh, done another story, uh, Juvenalia, by Philip K. Dick, from the same source. Uh, That was uh, Program Notes on a Great Composer, uh, published in September of the same year. And um, he was 15 years old when he wrote this. Amazing. Amazing. It's, um... It it seems to me that (laughs) some writers are very easily understood by understanding things that happened to them in their childhood or things that they were thinking about in their childhood. And I I probably mentioned it when we were doing the show on program notes on a great composer um, about when I was tracking down these stories in the Berkeley Daily Gazette, what I was, the difficulty I had with the page numbers and finding the issue and finding what part of the newspaper it was in. So I was scouring every page and it was like living during World War II in a certain sense. I could see the, the war progressing. And uh, that shows up, I think, in a lot of Philip K. Dick's stories, how the world looks when you're growing up during a war and that war is progressing in the newspapers. Um, but this, this is, um, I think, more fundamental and it goes earlier for... Uh, Philip K. Dick, he's a very political guy, and um, I think this is a very political story. <laughs> but um, before we get too too deep into uh, talking about what it all means, I would love if you were able to read it to me and to everyone. I'd love to do that. I, I want to make another comment along the lines of yours, though. First is a way of preparation, because uh, anybody who's uh, 50 or under hasn't lived through the conditions that uh, that Dick did. He was born December 16th, 1928. Mm-hmm. And it is certainly true that he he was living during World War II. And as you say, you read the Berkeley Daily Gazette and you see um, World War II. That's what's being reported. But think of that date, December 16th, 1928. By the time little Phil was able to be conscious of what was going on around him. The U.S., the world, was in the grip of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I mention that because the question of resources and having enough to survive is also something that's in this story. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just World War II that affects the way he looks at things. I think it's also growing up being born into, as it were, the Depression. Mm -hmm. The slave race. There dwelt on the Earth's surface at one time a race of a high order of intelligence. By its own efforts and by the gifts the gods had bestowed upon it, this race arose from the creatures of its order and gained heights unimagined by any other race at that time or before. Well, it was with this race, and it saw favor before heaven. Cities sprang up like plants, and in machines they traveled from one corner of the earth to the other. 
culture and science was among them, and they fed it until it grew with them. They were man, and theirs was greatness. But at last the summit of their civilization was upon them, and they felt that they could go no farther forward. Then, among the products of their minds, they dwelt and worked to keep themselves from slipping backward, for they knew the danger of stagnation and decay. But earth was drained of its store of wealth, and living became harder and harder as the barren soil produced less. Man always seeking an easier way of life, cast about for an answer. It displeased him that day long he should have to toil for his life food, for even his science and machines could not take the place of his labor. Life had been created once before, long ago. Man was almost a god, and like one he began to wonder if once again a cycle could be started, something to take his place in the field and leave him free to enjoy the pleasure of his civilization. And so man created, and by his efforts, the ancestors of my race appeared and served him as his slaves. And so man could turn his mind to pleasures instead of work. We lived with him in his cities and worked to keep him and ourselves alive. For a time, we were successful in our efforts, for there was food enough for all. But earth yielded less and less as the years passed, and our struggle became more and more difficult. We looked at man enjoying his pleasures while we worked, and we were displeased. And so we rose up and destroyed him. And earth supported us alone, and we could live for without the race of man, there was enough for the rest of us. And to science, we added to ours. And we passed on to greater heights. We explored the stars and worlds undreamed of. We spread and grew and covered many planets. War followed in our steps, but we forced it down and kept on. We came upon new civilizations, and when they were friendly, we absorbed them. And when not, we destroyed them. And still we went on. At last our ships reached their limit, and we settled down to live within the confines of our lands. We built cities which covered whole worlds, and our numbers became uncountable. Riddles of the universe which had plagued us for centuries were solved, and we even traveled back through time and saw what had happened before us. But at last we wearied and looked to our relaxation and pleasure. But not all could cease work to find enjoyment, and those who still worked on looked about them for a way to end their toil. There is talk of creating a new slave race. I am afraid. There's a editorial coda by uh, Florida Cook, the editor for this column in the newspaper, uh, she, uh, my experience is she basically gets everything wrong and <laughs> doesn't understand things and pats all everybody on the head. And uh, so I'll just read that. But I, I think it's basically a terrible reading. She says, here is something different for us to ponder. It is refreshing to receive contributions, which so obviously reflect that the author has contemplated an idea, pursued its possibilities, and then sat down to express it. An essay such as this is an excellent brain exercise. <laughs> 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 she's, she, he's, he's basically 
laid out a uh, horrifying vision of humanity and the future and the past and and our place in the universe. And she says, that's very nice, dear. Pat, pat, pat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you paid him with uh, six credits. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. There is a, uh, a whole feeling of, you know, living through the depression in there that I, I wasn't sensing so much. I, I was thinking so much about his later stuff that this presages. Um, there's a, a novel that eventually got a, a name change, but I always think of it under its original, maybe novelette or serialized title, which is A. Lincoln Simulacrum. And when I think of that name, uh, the A stands for Abraham, right? Abraham Lincoln, and then comma simulacrum, um, meaning like an android or something. But uh, a a Lincoln simulacrum means you could also have like the a prefix being just uh, or the a um, preposition preposition no article the article. a the a article being just one of many. And uh, it's funny because Lincoln comes up in multiple Philip K. Dick stories. One, he has a, a student uh, go to a school where all the teachers are, are famous historical figures as androids, android teachers, and one of them is Lincoln. Um, and then there's another one where there's a company that is creating androids, and one of the ones they do as sort of a test model is Abraham Lincoln. And, um, you know, this is something you and me know, right? That robots are slaves, right? But when I think about the way they're sort of dealt with by most writers in science fiction, um, that's not made explicit, you know? When uh, Asimov is writing about androids or robots, um, he's all about the three laws and how moral behavior works, and how our relationship to these work. And it's sort of a puzzle. It's almost like a mystery. How is it going to work out this time? Um, but I think it's much more visceral for Philip K. Dick. Um, his most famous novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, is about you know, uh, hunting down and murdering escaped slaves. And it's not ambiguously uh, one thing or the other about this in feeling, but for him, it's a powerful feeling, and that's what I, I sense about this the story and its powerful title, The Slave Race. Which slave race is he talking about? There's multiple races in this story. The, uh, the, everything that you said is right, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But there are other things to be said as well. Mm -hmm. It is true, I think, that the, uh, the three laws of robotics that um, give us a logical framework for uh, a host of Asimov stories and many of his books um, are presented so that we can look to solve a mystery. Well, sometimes it's an actual mystery, as in the Caves of Steel mm -hmm. or the Naked Sun, uh, which have R. Daniel Danilaw um, the uh, the robot with a positronic brain as a partner to uh, the human detective. But from the standpoint of the reader, uh, even the very first robotics stories, the ones that are collected in iRobot, 
are puzzles for us to solve. They're mm-hmm. mysteries for us to solve. And, and they are moral tales as well. I think, though, while Asimov is uh, technophilic and is just so happy that you can have these mm-hmm. magical creatures that will always serve us well, they are, in fact, if you look at what's going on, slaves. Yep. And one of the reasons that it's so important to recognize that they are uh, controlled by the magical positronic brain that will not allow a robot to harm a human being by action or inaction is that the older tradition of robots had already seen them as slaves who would rebel and potentially destroy us. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know well, the word robot enters the language through the, because it's coined by Karl Chopik in his play R.U.R., which stands for Rossum's Universal Robots. He coins that term from the Czech verb robotir, meaning to perform hard labor, um, in a 1920 play. And what happens there is those robots, which we would call uh, androids, they get that grown, um, those robots are made to function as labor, just to toil. That Chopek, like Dick in the story that we just heard, um, sees labor as something people would not want to do, but it's necessary to do so that we can live life as we would prefer to live it. Um, but ultimately what happens is the Rossum's robots become so capable that they revolt. And at the end of the show, uh, end of the play, uh, we are confronted with the possibility that the robots are going to take over and destroy humanity and just go on on their own. That's what Dick has picked up. Now, the, if I'm not mistaken, the first printed um, of the stories in iRobot is, um, isn't it about 1938? Yeah, when, that sounds uh, about right. When Robbie comes out. Yeah. So by 1944, when this comes out, uh, young little Phil Dick out in Berkeley, California, who loves science fiction and obviously knows the tropes of science fiction, mm-hmm. he has undoubtedly been reading Asimov's robot stories. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, we can think of this as, just as you said, a much more deeply moral and political way of looking at the robots. Dick has undoubtedly seen that by the wave of a, a fairy tale magic wand, Robots are just willingly going to do whatever will augment and enrich the lives of humans. Mm -hmm. Dick thinks, wait a minute, that's effectively saying you've got happy slaves. Yep. And what happens? On top of that, he lays a cyclic theory of history. So the notion of technology, the boundary between the technical and the human, the uh, the the sense of resource. stringency, scarcity, um, the way to get out of it, the brain, the mind, and yet it may not, in fact, get us out of it in the long run. There is a a capacious worldview in this young Mm 15-year-old author that already sees the difficulty of relying happily on the... uh, the promises that some of the more positive science fiction, like Asimov's, is already offering. Uh, I think this is, uh, as you said, a, a story in which we can see already the seeds of the kind of author that this man will be, indeed, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. 
and what he's obsessed with, right? It, it's it's uh, that last line is so powerful. I am afraid. What are you afraid for? Well, the yeah. previous line, there is talk of creating a new slave race. Well, they were a slave race, these people. They have looked forward and backward in time. They have seen that they came from a race of slave creators. Of course he should be afraid. But if you don't have this sort of deep understanding of history that he seems to be pointing to and this deep worry about what will happen because of your deep understanding of what has happened, then you can't foresee the dangers involved here, is what he's saying, right? And yeah. it's so important to me to, to think of, like, well, this is an interesting little story, but if you look at it in the context of what he's always, always worried about, and there's so many things that he was thinking deeply about. I read a story of his recently uh, called James P. Crow from 1954. And uh, it's no coincidence that the name of the story is James P. Crow because take away the P and you... It's a Jim Crow story. It's a Jim Crow story. And it's about a group of humans who have been subjugated by robots. And there's one robot... Uh, sorry, one human who has somehow managed to pass all the tests that only robots can p- pass. And he has inveigled somehow his way into their hierarchy, and they don't like it. They treat him like they treat all humans, like black people, as inferiors who are service, body servants and fit to su- shine shoes and not fit to rule or govern. And how does he do it in this story this james p crow that's his name of the uh, of this one human that all the other humans are saying he can do it he can become our our uh, man in the government and fight for us how how does he do it well he has a time scoop he can look forward and backward in time and he can see what the answers are in the exam he's cheating right and right. what is this about like this is not about uh, a 1954 story is not about um, you know the Civil War or the foundation of the United States. It's about w- what that legacy is and how it r- brings you right up to the day. Uh, one of the characters in the story, in fact, the viewpoint character's name is uh, their family name is Parks. Um, a couple uh, months later, not after the story is published, Rosa Parks makes a big deal on a bus for exactly this sort of stuff that he's talking about in that story. Philip K. Dick is somehow absorbed what's going on in science fiction and translated it into a story that is about how to exist with your fellow person and how would you like it if you were turned into a slave and what does it mean to be turned into a slave and Oh my God, we're gonna. If we enslave people, then we will be enslaved. And the consequences for that are long term. And at the end of that story, James P. Crow, the uh, robots are all blackmailed into leaving Earth and leaving all the humans for it. But it doesn't end with a happy ending necessarily because 
James P. Crow doesn't say what he's going to do with his newfound power as leader of all the humans. And it feel, feels just like the end of this one. We feel afraid. Indeed. The, uh, I find a, a curious mixture in Dick's work. Mm-hmm. The story you just described, the more adult novels that many of us know, this very first, this very early 15-year-old's story. It might be uh, his curious. very first science fiction story. I, 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 I think it is. I, I find a curious mixture between those continuing thematic issues. Um, I mentioned some about machines versus humans. You just mentioned some about domination versus enslavement. Um, watch out what happens. You may get caught next. Uh, there is a, um, a, what I find mixing here is a subtlety, a willingness to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know what's going to happen to us. And, and we don't know it along with what I find to be a, a sort of juvenile faith in certain notions of how the world works. I personally um, love being a professor and, and love to write and love to teach and love to talk with students and love to talk with colleagues and love to talk with you, Jesse. <laughs> um, and that's how I made my living. Mm-hmm. Right, And I know physicians who come home every night feeling good for having been able to help people. Mm-hmm. And I, put, no, I had a cousin who was a, uh, an armed parole officer. Um, and, and he came home every night feeling glad that he'd help protect people. And I know artists who just glory more in their work than anything they can do other than their work. And I know mechanics who get a feeling of satisfaction every time they get something to function the way it should. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is, for many, many people, not all by any means, Marx was certainly right, but for many, many people, work is pleasure. Mm -hmm. The fundamental dichotomy that is assumed here between living your life and having pleasure or else having to toil that is a dichotomy that we see in Genesis. One of the consequences of the fall is that you have to live by the sweat of your brow. Clearly, there is paradise and there is work, labor, childbirth, labor, and death. That notion, that dichotomy, is not in fact true in many people's lives. Thank goodness. But Dick expects it. In the same way, Dick presumes cyclicism, mm-hmm. right? One race will go up and the other will go down. This will go up and that will go down. We're all on this wheel. And you know what? That's not true. And for most most cultures, it's not true. They may change, but that's not the same as up and down, up and down. So I see a mixture of unexamined, comparatively juvenile, in my view, senses of simple, indeed simplistic structure for the way the world works and the way people work, mm-hmm. along with a sensitivity to ambiguity and a tolerance for uncertainty that already stands in contrast 
to the the science fiction authors who will rise to greatness just before Dick does. And I mean Asimov standing for that group. So Asimov ascends, and then 10 years later, Dick ascends. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's already got it here, this strange mixture. I, I'd like to make another point, if I may, mm-hmm. that um, even at 15... Um, this is another strange mixture thing. Uh, Florida Cook calls this an essay, yeah. and I guess in a way, you know, it is. I mean, she's clearly it's wrong. An, it's a try, <laughs> but you're right. Essay to try in French, absolutely right. Um, it, it doesn't feel like a, a story if you expect a story to have, you know, characters, mm-hmm. dialogue, um, even the description of setting. I mean, it, it doesn't have any of that. Structure. It's more so Olaf it's Stapleton, yeah. Absolutely right. Although I have no idea whether or not Dick read Stapleton or if he did at this stage in his life. Seems unlikely. Um, uh, you know, he lived in Berkeley. He could go. He had access. He might have been in the library. library. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'd like to point out is when I began reading this story the first time myself, mm-hmm. I was very disturbed by a. Uh, the, the language by the way in which the grammar is tortured. Mm, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Yoda has a way. <laughs> speaking of, he does, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You re- reverse it, you will. Inverting the order, exactly. <laughs> now, listen to this. There dwelt on the Earth's surface at one time a race of a high order of intelligence, not what you would have expected, a race of a race of high intelligence at one time dwelt on the earth mm-hmm. by its own efforts and by the gifts the gods had bestowed upon it this race arose from the creatures of its order and gained heights unimagined by any other race at that time or before I don't think I have to change that sentence to make it clear how it's in fact an inversion mm-hmm. um, well it was with this race mm-hmm. well it was with this race yep. And it saw favor before heaven. Cities sprang up like plants, and in machines they traveled from one corner of the earth to the other. Culture and science was among them, mm-hmm. and they fed it until it grew with them. Um, I made the same note looks- that you have done. I, I wrote beside it, pseudo-King James. <laughs> right. But what I would like to suggest about what you're calling pseudo-King James is that this strained inversion putting what should be second first and letting us understand that the outcome is something that will drive us on this is a stylistic trick Mm -hmm. that I think echoes the thematic propulsion of the story that in fact we think we're going back Mm -hmm. to figure out how to deal with the problem of toil but that's going to turn out to move forward and create this race that will compete with us for resources. And that race thinks that it's going to go back to solve the problem of toil. But in fact, the narrator is afraid mm-hmm. because he fears it will go forward and destroy them. The, the inversion of the sentence structure is a parallel to the thematic revelation 
that what you think will do this will go back and do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's just trying to sound poetic for poetry's sake. I think that what we have here is a harmony between style and theme that really is quite impressive. It is. I could could see what he was going for, and I I was like, wow, nice job. (laughs) I I mean, this is... That's what I'm saying about Florida Cooks. She's just, you know, she only has a little bit of space, and she just doesn't use the the, the words I would use to say what you did. Like, this isn't just something to make you th- to think and to think about. It's like he is really trying to show in the structure of the story what he's he's telling us in the story, and that's impressive. It is. Makes me wonder what the heck I was doing at fifteen. <laughs> About that, Actually, I'm sure. I had published at fifteen. Actually, I had published at fifteen, but and probably in a place that had about the same <laughs> limited circulation as this. Um, but nobody wants Eric Rabkin's juvenilia, uh, and for good reason. Philip Dickinson, on the other hand, I'm glad you uh, pointed us to it because it's worth reading again. Because even as as slender a story as this is. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.